Well, thank you, Daniel and Linda, for leading us in worship. Um, you may have noticed that there was a theme to a lot of those songs, and you sang the word good or goodness uh, a number of times. There was the one song, King of My Heart, and the chorus was, you are good, good, so good, you are good, good, so good, you are good. I, I don't know about you, and I find myself singing a repetitive chorus, my mind wanders. And as we're singing that, I went, what in the world does that mean? You are good, good. So good. You are good. Good. So good. What does the word good mean? What's it mean to you? Because from my experience, trying to define the word good is like trying to nail a piece of jello to the wall. Because it is such a, oh, it's become such a bland word. Uh, it's, it's a word that's become watered down. Have like you ever been in a store and, and there's a parent with an unruly kid and the kid is misbehaving and doing one thing after the other that's wrong, not listening to the parent, and then finally the kid comes to the, to the light and, and obeys or stops screaming or whatever and the, the mother or father says, oh, good boy, good girl. And I'm going, what? Did you miss all the other things that the kid was doing? Or, or someone with a dog who's not obeying, dragging him down the street, doing all the things that it's not supposed to do, but all of a sudden it stops or it stops barking. It's, good boy, good girl. It's such a watered-down word. Uh, and, and often it's a thoughtless word. Like, we say it without even thinking. Like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. You know, like, I found myself at, like at a funeral, and asking someone from the immediate family, how are you doing? Like, what in the world am I asking? Like, what a dumb question. But then a lot of people respond, oh, I'm doing good. Well, are you really doing good? What does good even mean? Or did you enjoy the meal? Oh, yeah, it was good. Well, what does that even mean? It can be a manipulative word, right? right? We told our kids, eat that because it's good for you. Commercials will tell you you need to buy that product or you need to use this thing. Why? Because it's good for you. And so the word good has become blah. Uh, it's uh, become overused. And it really doesn't bring about the emotion that the word was intended to evoke. Uh, anticipation, expectation, awe. Even... As a child, we're taught to pray, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. As we get older, we may find ourselves praying and thanking God for his goodness. We just sang a bunch of songs talking about God's goodness. But what does it mean? You know, I think as a child, when, when we say God is great, God is good, it, it, it brings about a sense of awe. But I think for a lot of people as they get older, it loses its punch. And it just becomes words. But we still say it. Right? We still say the words, God, you're good. But there's a battle that rages within for us to believe and to allow that truth to transform our life. You see, what we believe about God and His 
goodness has a direct impact on the way that we live our life. What we believe about the goodness of God will determine if we're willing to give Him control, if we're willing to trust Him, it will determine the gratitude that we have towards Him. It will determine our worship of Him. You know, there's a, an African chant that goes, God is good all the time. God is good all the time. But do we really believe it? And if we believe it, has it transformed the way that we live our life? This morning we're continuing, it's actually the second last week of our series that we've been looking at since September uh, called Regroup, uh, the, the foundations of our faith that, that even COVID can impact, that, that stand the test of time. And if you are here a couple of weeks ago, uh, that's what really threw me off, Daniel, because I thought you were going to sing the Heart of Worship, which is on the... On the service order, but it was just left by mistake from, the, from last week. And I, and I thought, how did Daniel know that the, the passage I want to look at this morning was actually one of the passages uh, that I suggested I could have looked at two weeks ago when we looked at what we believe about worship. Uh, and if you remember that, I defined worship. It's an active response to God whereby we declare His worth and, and we, we worship through our praise through our obedience, and through our service. And I suggested that there was a number of different psalms specifically that we could look at that really teach us about how to worship and, and, and why to worship. But I suggested that we really need to get to the, to the heart of worship. That, uh, and I'm not talking about Jesus, but, but the heart of inside of us when it comes to worship. And I suggested that understanding Romans 12 verse 1 helps us to understand the hows and whys of worship even better. If you remember Romans 12 verse 1 says, therefore in view of all that God has done for us, including the salvation that we have because of Jesus, the true and proper response, Paul says, our true and proper worship, our strategic, our logical worship is to offer our entire selves to Christ. I said, until we understand that, the whys and hows of, of, of worship aren't as impactful as they are when we understand what Paul is teaching us in Romans 12. But one of the passages that I suggested would be a great psalm to look at when we're talking about what we believe about worship is Psalm 100. And if you've got your Bible or if you're at home, uh, uh, got your Bible, um, turn to Psalm 100. And, and let's just read it because here we find the psalmist calling us to worship. It's a call to worship. Often we'll start a service here at Auburn, and, and that may be the text that we begin with. Uh, Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who has made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. There's one thing I want us to note about Psalm 100 right off the bat. 
And that is that there is an underlying theme to this psalm. The psalmist is so convinced about something concerning God that it fuels and underlines, underlies the rest of his psalm and results in this call to worship. And, and the underlying theme is this. God is good. God is good all the time. Now, Psalm 100 is a few things just to, to uh, get out of the way as we, we I want to look at something very specifically. But, but Psalm 100 tells us a few things. And, and one is that how we worship is important to God. God wants us to worship Him joyfully, gladly, uh, willingly informed. Uh, as a result, He wants us to uh, worship Him exuberantly. Psalm 100 is a call to worship in the purest of form. The second thing about Psalm 100 is that it is an enthronement psalm. There's Psalm 90 through, right through to Psalm 100, Bible scholars refer to them as enthronement psalms. And these psalms are, are meant to remind and encourage those who read and, and who would hear a psalm like Psalm 100, that, that God is to be worshipped as creator, as king, as judge, as warrior, as revealer of truth, as the good shepherd. And so the purpose of a psalm like Psalm 100, not only is it a call to worship, but it is uh, to be taken into consideration. Uh, and as we consider the words of the psalm, we are to find ourselves bowing in reverence and awe before the king who's on the throne, realizing the supremacy of his reign and of his, of his power of a, and of his majesty. So Psalm 100 is a call to worship, but it's, it's also an enthronement psalm. That God is seated on the throne and we are to worship him uh, as such. And you can split uh, Psalm 100 into two parts. Uh, in verses 1, 2, and 4, uh, we are given the call to worship. Uh, and it is a loud call to worship. An exuberant call to worship. Shout for joy to the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. This call to worship is calling us uh, as if we were cheering on our favorite sports team. We are coming into the presence of Almighty God, the one seated upon the throne and we are to overflow in our worship. And so it's a call to worship, but the second part of Psalm 100, which we see in verses 3 and verses 5, gives us the rationale, the why of worship. Why do we worship this king, creator, warrior, revealer of truth, good shepherd, king, who's enthroned on the throne of heaven, why do we worship him? You see, this isn't just an exuberant call to worship where we kind of put our brains into neutral. The psalmist is calling us to an informed worship. A worship based on knowledge. And so when we come into verse 3, we find a very critical word. In fact, I would suggest that 
everything that follows the first word of verse 3 hinges upon that word. It's, it, it's fueled by that word. And that word is no. No. It refers to experiential knowledge that's held with absolute certainty. To know something beyond the shadow of a doubt. And when it comes to God, it, it involves having made a distinction. Having it nailed down concerning who God is, what He's like, and what He has done. It also involves this hunger, a, a desire to grow deeper in our knowledge about those things to do with God and what He's like and what He's done. You see, the psalmist is calling us to worship, but it's informed worship. And, and so, so we need to know what it is that the psalmist has nailed down concerning God that, that leads him, fuels him in his worship, and, and leads him to invite us to join him in worshiping this God. And so what are these things that, that the psalmist knows to be true about God? Well, right in verse 3, he points out three things immediately. He says, know, first of all, that the Lord is God. The God that we have come to worship is the one true God. The God of the Bible is the one true God. He's unique. He is above all. He has no rival. He is absolutely supreme in power and authority. He alone is worthy of our worship and our service. The Lord, He is God. Who have we come to worship this morning? You know, it's often said that where we spend the majority of our time and energy and resources, that's the God of our life. Small g, but it's the God of our life. It's hard to heed the call of Psalm 100 when our heart is somewhere else. The Lord, He is God. And He'll tolerate no rivals. You know, and I've experienced in my life, and I've, I've experienced, especially being involved in leadership for a number of years, people who, who find themselves agonizing over things. Troubled at heart and not really sure why. And I often wonder is it because they haven't put God on the throne of their life and they've put something else? And God won't tolerate a rival. And God is at work in your life. And you're going to feel anxious and you're going to feel bothered. And you're you're not going to understand what's going on until you bow before the Lord who is God and put him on the throne of your life. And so the psalmist knows that the Lord is God and then he says, and it's he who has made us. And at first glance, you would think, oh, okay. The psalmist is calling us to worship God for his works of creation. And we look outside, it's a nice day today, a little cold, but it's nice. And we can see so many things that we can be thankful for and worship for, for God's beautiful creation. 
But that's not actually the intent of what the psalmist is talking about here. He's not actually talking about creation. He's talking about recreation. He's actually referring to God's work in salvation history. And the psalmist, as a a spokesperson for his people, can look back to their history and see how God has come into their time and to their space, and he has chosen them as a nation. And he's rescued them from slavery. He's brought them to the promised land. And time and time and time again, his people have screwed up and have disobeyed and have sinned and been unfaithful, and yet God has been there for them. And he has forgiven and he showed mercy and he's shown grace. And so the psalmist could say, the Lord is God and it's he who has made us. It's he who has saved us. And then he says, not only has he saved us, but we're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Remember, this is an enthronement psalm. God is seated on the throne. He is supreme in power and authority. He's got no rival. He can't tolerate sin. And yet the psalmist could say, we're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And we may go, wow, it must be nice to be an Old Testament person and be able to say that about God and about his acts uh, within salvation history for his people how he's made them his own nation, his own people. And yet as we, we move into the New Testament, we can say the same things. In it, Titus 2, verse It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We can say like the psalmist that we know to be true beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Lord, he is God, that his son is God. And that he has reached down into our time and space. He has reached down into our history. And he has offered us salvation. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that we become his children. And so just as the psalmist is convinced that these things are true beyond the shadow of a doubt, he appeals to us to understand and to agree with him that the Lord is God. It's he who has reached down and he has saved us, offered us salvation. And we can become his children, his people. But I said, underlying this whole psalm, underlying those three points, is this theme that we see in Psalm 100. God is good. God is good all the time. And I realize the reality is, Just because I say God is good, just because the psalmist says God is good, just because Daniel and Linda have led us in a number of songs where we sang God is good and we talked about the goodness of God, I can't expect for you just to accept it. 
I realize some of you have had life experiences that have disillusioned you to the goodness of God, have caused you to question the goodness of God, to doubt, to, to, to reject the goodness of God. And, and, and you're not the first person to do that. In fact, if we were to flip all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we'd see that Satan convinces Adam and Eve to doubt what? The goodness of God. Adam and Eve, don't, uh, don't you realize that, that God is holding part of his goodness back from you? If you really want to enjoy life to the fullest, you need to put your trust in yourself. You need to take control. Because God isn't as good as you think he might be and as good as he says he is. We we, We all know how that turned out for Adam and Eve. Psalm 73, Asaph. He believes in the goodness of God, but he's got a distorted view of the goodness of God. He believes that the goodness of God should equal health and wealth. And what sounds like something that's hung on for a couple thousand years or, or more. That's what Asaph believed. But then he saw all these people who he labeled as evil seemingly being blessed in life. And it caused him to question the goodness of God. It brought him to the point of almost giving up his faith in God. And so I I get the reality is that you can't just accept the psalmist or the songwriters or the preacher on the basis of his words. But here's the problem. I kind of mentioned it already. If we reject, resist, or refuse the truth that God is good all the time, And we can't totally trust him. We can't totally give our entire life over to him. We can't totally experience the joy and the peace that is to come to a child of God who finds rest in the truth that God is good all the time. If you resist, refuse, or reject the truth that God is good all the time, you'll find yourselves at times giving control of your life over to other people and to other things and to other pursuits. You'll find if you resist, refuse, or reject that God is good all the time, that your focus, your perspective on life becomes a whole lot more physical than it does spiritual. So what can the psalmist inform us about, help us to understand and to know that can help us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is good all the time? Theologians tell us that that goodness is a perfection of God. Like, he doesn't do goodness well. He does it perfect. It's an attribute of God. In fact, it sums up all of God's 
attributes. Meaning that everything about God is good. So praise Him. Everything that God does is good. So praise Him. God is the source of all things that are good. So we praise Him. God can't do anything that isn't good. And so He's worthy of our praise. God is good. And that's what the psalmist wants to understand. The goodness is is flowing through this whole psalm. It's the reason for the call to worship. God's goodness is seen in the way that he has reached into history and has offered salvation to his people, Israel, and has offered salvation to us in New Testament times. God is good. And he continues in the psalm to point out where we see God's goodness flowing. And he says, his love endures forever. Not not the fickle, temporary, up and down kind of love that that you and I uh, have experienced giving and, and receiving. No, God's love is constant. It endures forever. His tank is full. It's never can be it never can be exhausted. And it's a personal love. God's love for you and for me is based on an intimate knowledge of who we are and what we need. And think about what I just said there. His love for us is based on a knowledge of who we are and what we need. If you think back to what Daniel and Linda read to us from Romans 5, that informs us a lot about who we are and what we need. You see, verse 5 of Psalm 100 opens the window to the greatest demonstration of love ever known to mankind. And that's what we read about in Romans 5. And in Romans 5, the, the players are very evident who they are. You have a holy and just and righteous God who can't tolerate sin. And you have humanity who's dying in their sin, who can't get it right. No matter how hard we try, we can't attain, achieve, deserve to have a right standing with God because of our sin. But what did we read in Romans 5, in verse 6 of Romans 5? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love endures forever. And then it says his faithfulness continues through all generations. Jack made a revelation on work today, a discovery, I guess. He unpeeled the label off, off of a, was it Javex or whatever? Wipes, actually. Something like that that was in the back of my truck, and Jack thought it would be good if he took the label off of it. And when he got underneath the label, he said, yeah, even they have an expiry date. And it's true. Everything has, that's why I said to him, everything has an expiry date. 
everything runs its course, right? Like, eventually the things are going to shrivel up or dry up or turn into poison. I don't know. It's the same with anything you buy, right? I told you a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at, at a, so, a sofa at Bennett's. And I was a little concerned with, with where the, the sofa was coming from. And uh, the guy said, but we offer the best warranty in the business. And Allison said to me, that, that to me, yeah, but there's, there's a good warranty on it. I said, yeah, but the warranty comes to an end. And then what happens? I don't care what the vehicle is. You can buy a new car. It's got the best warranty in the industry. But yeah, but every warranty has an expiry. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. The guarantee is only good for so long. If the psalmist says, the faithfulness of God goes on and on and on. There's no expiry date on the warranty. There's no limit stamp to how good it is. What God has promised, he will do. He is 100% loyal. Because he's good, he can't go against his promises. And if we had the time and we listed all the promises of God that we find in Scripture, that He will love us, that He will save us, that He will protect us, He will provide for us, He will shelter us, He'll come again for us, and on and on and on and on, we can have 100% confidence that God will come through because His faithfulness endures generation to generation. And this is the King. This is the Shepherd King that the psalmist is inviting us to join him in worshiping. Because he's good. He's a good God. I was reading a, a John Ortberg book, and he tells the, or shares the account of, a, of a, a, a man by the name of John Gilbert. And John Gilbert, at the age of five, was diagnosed with a very severe form of muscular dystrophy, uh, one that would take his life 20 years later. And uh, every year that John Gilbert lived, uh, the, the muscular dystrophy uh, um, progressively debilitated him to the point where any outward motion that we just take for granted, he had totally lost until the point where he could no longer even speak. But before it had taken its full toll on him, uh, a very special moment took place in John Gilbert's life. He was at a fundraiser that was uh, being sponsored by the National Football League. Uh, and uh, as uh, he was there with his mom, and John was looking at all the different items that were up for auction, he saw one thing that captured his attention. It was a basketball uh, that was signed by all the members of his favorite basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. And he would just have loved to have that basketball. And uh, things started being auctioned off, and finally it came to the time for the basketball. And uh, all of a sudden, John was able to get his arm up in the air. Very quickly, his mom put his arm down because she realized we don't have money to pay for that ball, regardless of what the winning bid might be. And so they sat and they watched as the bids kept getting higher and higher and higher and higher until finally they some gentleman offered an amount of money that was just ridiculous for this basketball, worth much more than the basketball was ever worth, uh, worth, worth, worth a higher price than anything else had been auctioned off 
up to that point. Uh, and the gentleman won the bid, and uh, everyone clapped, and the gentleman went out and picked up the ball. But instead of walking back to his seat, he walked across the room. And as people started clapping and weeping, he handed the ball into John Gilbert's very weak and frail hands, gave it to this boy who would never be able to dribble it or throw it to a teammate, throw it up to a hoop, but he would cherish that ball for the rest of his life. And uh, being still able to write at this point in his life, let me just find it here. John Gilbert uh, wrote these words. It took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room, then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. To this day, I'm amazed. Have you ever been given a gift that you could have never gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return? You know, I think we all love these stories that, uh, of extravagant, lavish, undeserved kindness. But there isn't a person sitting in this room who hasn't been the recipient of undeserved, exuberant, lavish kindness and goodness. And I can say that beyond the shadow of a doubt, not knowing some of you really that well at all, but I can say it beyond the shadow of a doubt because God is good and he sent Jesus for you. And the last thing I want to say about what we believe about the goodness of God is this. God's goodness demands a response. And for some of us listening this morning, that response may be just to repent of ingratitude. Taking God's goodness for granted. Not even really thinking much about it. For someone listening here or, 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 or on Zoom or YouTube, may, maybe it's repenting of, of, of unbelief. Not realizing what God in His goodness has done as a demonstration of His love, sending His Son Jesus to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins so that we can have a right relationship. For some, our response to God's goodness is, is, is to finally rest. Find your rest. Especially in the midst of adversity and turmoil and yucky circumstances. Find your rest in the arms of a good God who's always good, who's got your back, who only wants the best for you and has promised to do so much for you. And because he's good, he can't go against his promises. And for some of us, our response is to step out in faith, knowing that God is good. Knowing that God has our best in mind. Knowing that God's plans for us and for this church, for our family is for good. And so we step out in faith in that goodness. God is good all the time.